Welcome to Eat, Sleep, Wine, Repeat, a podcast for all you wine lovers who, if you're like me, just cannot get enough of the good stuff. I'm Yanina Doyle, your host, brand ambassador, wine educator, and sommelier. So stick with me as we dive deeper into this ever-evolving, wonderful world of wine. And wherever you are listening to this, cheers to you. Hello to all my thirsty and inquisitive wine lovers. Welcome back to another episode. And today I am joined by Paul Kalamkiarian, who is the owner of the original wine club of the month, and they are based in Los Angeles. Now, having tasted, as he says, north of 100,000 bottles of wine, he has an absolute library of wine stories and of course literal wine. So in this podcast we are going to be touching on how things used to be. So Paul talks about the wine trade just 30 years ago and how much it has evolved. We're talking about the price of Grand Cru Chablis and yes it was insanely affordable and how back then there wasn't the same regulations now so people could call their Chardonnay Chablis or Rhine wine. Now, with all these stories and all these wines, Paul is going to be taking us back to Armenia, where there are 6,000-year-old wine caves. He's going to be name-dropping winemakers here and there, so pay attention. We're going to go across to Greece. We're going to go across to the Canary Islands. We're going to be talking about decent celebrity wines. There's so much packed in this. Tips for you guys, if you're going to go and purchase a bottle, what you might want to look for on the label. So sit back, relax, pour yourself a glass of wine and unwind with this really chilled out podcast. Paul, thank you so much for joining me and making it a little time to talk about what you do and giving us a rundown of California, your favorite wines and some wine tips. So welcome. Uh, thank you so much. It's great to be here across the pond, as we would say. Across the pond. A very, very large pond, really, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> now, <laughs> just a little bit. Now, I want to ask you the question. It's a boring old question, but people need to, you know, know where you're from and why. So, standard question. How did you get into wine? Did you fall into it like many of us do? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting. I worked in it all my life ever since I was a teenager. My father was a pharmacist by trade, and his mm. last pharmacy in 1969 that he had to purchase, that he needed to purchase, um, he wouldn't buy unless the gentleman sold him the liquor store that was adjacent, and it truly was, you know, beer, spirits, and ice cream. And ice cream. <laughs> and I, yeah, it was, just, you know, it was like a truck stop, but it was in a very um, affluent neighborhood in Southern California and the beach, mm-hmm. beach cities, and he turned it into one of the fine wine shops of Los Angeles by 1974, and I used to work there. You know, I used to stock the shelves and you know, I used to steal half pints of vodka from the guy, my poor father. And, <laughs> and so I've been around it all my life, but it wasn't until 1988 that he decided he would sell the company. He had a couple offers, uh, oddly from the South African Wine of the Month Club. Okay. And he said, you know, you got to come and check this place out. It's pretty cool. And uh, I did, loved it, and bought it from him in 1989. Ah, so that's how it started. Yeah, so we had gone to a tasting together, actually. We worked together for about 90 days, about three months. And we went to a Bordeaux tasting. We were separated. It was about 25 Bordeaux. I don't think they were classified, but they were high-end Bordeaux. Mm-hmm. And we 
tasted completely separately. And when we got in the car to compare notes, so we have a three-point scale that we use. Very quick, down and dirty, three meatball point? surgery. Three points. <laughs> you don't need a hundred. How 100. does that work? Oh, okay, <laughs> you know, okay. How yeah. does your... Th- no, I like it. Keep it clean. What's a three-point scoring system for you? So because we're looking for wines to select for the club for users... Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, for our customers to, to enjoy. It's a uh, one is you can't, we could can never use it uh, okay. because it's just too expensive or just really undrinkable. Two is we could use it today. In other words, it's, it's it matches all the parameters that we're looking for. And three is uh, if the price came down a little bit and we put it in a club where it's not so expensive, uh, then it would work. And mm-hmm. so that's it. That's what we use. <laughs> and yeah, it's, and I don't tell anybody that except for all your listeners. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> well, again, keeping things simple. Life is complicated enough. Okay, cool. When we got in the car, we compared our notes, and we were exactly the same on all of them except two. Okay. And so he thought, I think you're ready. And he sort of gave me the ceremonial dollar. I gave him a dollar. That's not. I still pay him every month, so don't let don't believe that story. But <laughs> it was it was. <laughs> it was it was a ceremonial dollar to transfer the, the rights to the company. Mm-hmm. And um, that was 1989, and we've been doing it ever since. And, you know, I don't know about you, but I wasn't originally that aha moment hadn't occurred for me. Okay. It was, it was down the road uh, a bit, uh, maybe 10 years into it. So I've been doing it 32 years. And that came with what? Just generally having I, tasted know. so much wines? Or a specific wine trip, or I think it was the 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 the, the, the former. I think I tasted so many different wines that eventually mm. it, it started to make sense to me. And the terroir uh, portion of wine, you know, the wine, the expression of where it's from and the and the time it was from, yeah. started to become apparent. Mm-hmm. And I started to realize I actually understood part of it. Don't understand most of it, but I still understand some of it. <laughs> yeah, how much do are. we actually know? This is a yes, valid point. I, I know. We will continue learning till we die. So tell me about the Wine of the Month Club. Many of uh, my listeners in America may already know about you, but certainly in the UK we don't. So tell us a little bit more how it functions and what you do there. It's the it's the original in America. My dad started in 1972. Mm-hmm. And it started not, this is the key difference between this organization and any other club that does this. And mm-hmm. the, the key difference is it was started and still is a, a basis to find the best valued wines on the shelf. Meaning okay. in 1972, when people came into my father's store, they would ask him, I have $5. Don't remember, it's 72 Five bucks went a lot further. What would that have been? <laughs> oh, be you now? could have gotten Grand Cru Chablis back then for five Oh, no, probably almost, but yeah. <laughs> no, it was it was six bucks. I mean, we, we sold it be- for six twenty nine or something. No, are you being serious? No. No, yeah, I have the I have the newsletters to prove it. No, okay, God, I, if only I was born a few decades earlier. Yeah, exactly. <sighs> okay. So anyway, he continue. so he would he decided because so many people asked the question that he would just choose the wines at the beginning of the month. And not only was that sort of revolutionary in the industry in 1972, uh, the fact that a salesman would come in with the Jack Daniels and the Jim Beam bourbon and the gin and mm. say, oh, by the way, I have Robert Mondavi Cabernet. It needs to go on the shelf. My father's starting to say, no, it doesn't go on the shelf unless I taste it. And that was really cutting edge for the wine world in the in America in 1972. You, did, you just put the stuff on the shelf because... There weren't that many choices anyway. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. So that was the way it worked. So what was interesting was Tuesdays was his tasting day. <laughs> Why Tuesdays? <laughs> I don't know. I really, 
never had the answer to that question. Uh-huh. But that's why I still do it today. Oh, okay. Yeah, following it's, the footsteps. Mm-hmm. Tuesdays, yeah, still tasting Tuesdays. Uh, he would invite the doctors that supported his pharmacy to the wine shop in the afternoon. I would brown bag the selections. I'd go up in the loft. I'd create these 10 seats. My dad used the UC Berkeley uh, tasting uh, scale, which was a 20-point scale uh, of the four or five you know pieces of it. Mm-hmm. And they would taste and talk, and then they would choose. And that would become the wines of the next month. And it's exactly mm-hmm. what we do today. And again, the premise was not to sell more bottles. It was to educate and to provide great value. I love that. So, you know, that's what I always say. I'm drinking for the masses. I'm doing it for you guys listening, right? <laughs> You'll agree with me, yeah, won't correct. you, Paul? <laughs> yes. So every Tuesday, so you have a group of wine tasters that sit with you and you bl- basically blind taste a number of bottles every week. No, and here's the beauty of this. Maybe it's not. <laughs> maybe it's, <laughs> I'll decide. Maybe it's Let more me know. Work. Okay. Uh, but it's, I have an online calendar. They start at nine o'clock. I end it too. It's nobody else except me. Once in a while, I have a guest that comes in, but they have to understand that this is meatball surgery. We are, I get through 75 wines uh, on a Tuesday. So you're opening and tasting, opening and tasting. And that three point scale really comes in handy because you don't spend a lot of time chewing on the wine. I chew mm. on the wine later. You know, if, if, if somebody brings me a Napa Valley cab or a, a Canary Island, you know, Listron Negro, I will taste it for what it is worth at, at from where it's from and when it's from. And I guess after about 100,000 wines, you start to sort of learn something, even me, right? (laughs) I would hope so, So after that many, yeah. So so tell me, like you just mentioned Napa Cap, many people are going to heard of. And then you've mentioned Listan Negro, which is amazing, all the Listan varieties. I've mentioned them several times. I used to work for a Chilean winery, so Pais, uh, Listan Prieto. Is, is actually doing really interesting things now in Chile. So I think it's, it's super exciting things coming from these volcanic soils and such like. So tell us a little bit about maybe your favorite wines that you've put in your wine club subscription recently or that just stick in your mind. You know, it's, that's a great question. Not even, it's just a great study and conversation <laughs> because you know, it's dynamic as you know, you, you, your palate changes over time. Yeah. Mm. And when I got married, my wife only drank, you know, Gallo Chablis, which was in a jug, you know, at one at one point we called them jugs back then. Yeah, Gallo Chablis. I love that they were calling it Chablis at that time. <laughs> oh yeah, they had Rhine wine, they had they had Hardy Burgundy back in the day. Can't and so it. now she is my biggest critic of mm-hmm. of my reds. So you know, ah, your palate changes. Mm. But what's kind of interesting, and this is going back to the Listron Negro a grape, when I when I put wines in my database as I'm tasting them. Uh, mm-hmm. it'll start to pop the, the choices based on my misspellings will start to start to pop up and I'm putting in L I S T and nothing's showing up. I'm like, it's pretty rare that a wine is not the grape varietal is not in my database. Meaning after a hundred thousand wines that there's something that I haven't tasted before mm-hmm. and, and it, it's not showing up and I couldn't believe it. And here I'm tasting this wine, which like you said, is all volcanic soils and this is a spicy component. So it's Sangiovese like, and I'm like, wow, this is really cool. I, I couldn't afford it for the club to answer that question they are actually yeah then they're not that cheap are they because there's not that much of it made yeah Mm -hmm. so i bought it for my seller which is available to clients that want to try 
interesting things that I can't afford to put in the mainstream. That's one of them. Um, have you had any Armenian wines lately? I can't believe you have said that because I was just at London Wine Fair and there was a whole stand on Armenia and I never got to it. But oh, I did have the. But I did have. I know. But I have had an Arreni Noir before. Uh-huh, right. And that one Arreni Noir was so elegant, planted on altitude. Um, and it really was Pinot Noir-esque. It was yes. very, very beautiful. So it was by a producer called Zora, Z-O-R-A-H, I remember. It had, and it had quite a good label, it's actually quite quite modern. So what, what, what have you been drinking from Armenia? I feel bad now. I can't believe literally yesterday I could have been drinking some. That would have been yeah, good for this podcast, wouldn't it? <laughs> it would have been, yeah, it would have been an interesting study. Uh, but it really puts like what's interesting right now to me. And I'm, I'm Armenian, so... You would think that Are I have you? this predisposition. Oh, yes. Okay. You'd think I have a predisposition to understand and to care. Yeah. Uh, the Zora wines are very well known. They're they're one of the older brands that actually have you know quality to them. But let's let's take it back just a little bit. You know, uh, I was talking to Nicole Rollet, mm-hmm. uh, and she is a brilliant uh, winemaker in the Cote de Rhone. Mm-hmm. And she she started an organization called the Adani Global Foundation, and it's um, it's an organization to promote uh, wine as a ethereal drink and all the things that go with the lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And I said, "How did you choose Adani? You know, that's a weird name." Uh, and she says, "Well, because they found this six thousand year old winery in Armenia in the caves with shoes and amphora and the whole thing." Yes. Mm-hmm. So there, there's quite a history of wine in Armenia and the Caucasus anyway, as you know. Yeah, of course. It's amazing, yeah. One of the, one of the winemakers uh, called Karas, which you would have probably tasted at the fair, uh, which is also well-established. They have a lot of backing. Uh, they're trying French varietals, not just not any indigenous varietals. But the point of this conversation that I want to bring up was that Michel Roland was their enologist, the consulting enologist, and he went out to decide whether or not you know, grapes should be grown there. Mm-hmm. At least Venice Vinifera. And he said, yes, we can. Now we need years to figure it out. <laughs> it, which is, when I bring this up with winemakers all the time, like, you only, you know, if you're a winemaker, you're only getting like 20 to 40 vintages under your belt before you're done, right? I mean, that's mm-hmm. like, because it's once a year. That's all you get. Unless you mm-hmm. go to the Southern Hemisphere and back and forth. And so when Michelle Roland tells this winemaker, well, we'll, we'll, we'll know in 100 years. And she's like, well, I'm only 30, so that's 130. <laughs> I'm not going <laughs> to Yeah. <sighs> but it's such an ancient um, beverage in Armenia. And you would think that there'd be more. T- there would have been more. I went there in 2006, undrinkable. Nothing was palatable. Oh, it was really? all okay. just you know, rustic old stuff. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. But now that there's technologies and, and there's a lot of wineries coming out of there uh, and there's a lot of new wines, they're starting to develop. Maybe like you, I want them to express something, not red mm-hmm. wine. And yeah. for the first time after many years of tasting these wines, uh, last Tuesday I tasted a wine from a winery called Voskovaz. Okay. The wine was the same as what you tasted, Adeni Noir. And this was the first Armenian wine that I felt was an expression of time and place. Okay, okay. And it was absolutely mind-boggling. Did that make it into the wine club? No, because it's $45 wholesale. So, it's <laughs> like a, so that one's just for you. It's like a $60 yeah. bottle of wine. <laughs> yeah, okay. But it made it into my cellar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It made it into your cellar, that, into your own personal wine club for one, right? Correct. The wine club for one. <laughs> well, I'm gonna, you know what? What a great idea. 
I, uh, you know, listen, I am full of them, and that one is for free. But I think it's really interesting. <laughs> is it? Are, are many people really should? I think there was a. I think there was an Areni Noir that was in like the top ten. I don't know. There was yes. a big, wasn't there? There was something yeah, there was. a few years ago. This is. I'm uh, not making it up, aren't I? I think it was Jakubian Hobbs, which okay. is Paul Hobbs' uh, a soiree into the area. Okay. There's a. There's a gentleman named the guy that makes the Voskovas. His name is Vahe Kushkarian, and I've interviewed a couple hundred winemakers on my podcast. Mm-hmm. And when he walked in the door, it was like the whole level changed. He was a brilliant winemaker, and he goes to Armenia because he's already uh, made wine in Puglia. He's already made wine in Ki- in Chianti, and the motherland calls him back to Armenia, and he opens a co-op. Mm-hmm. Okay. The co-op plays host to about twelve different wineries, including his own. Mm-hmm. And he is the author of this Voskovaz. Okay. And he's, he, I, I'm gonna, I, I would guess that you would have tasted also if you had gone to the, the table. No, the I didn't. Kush. I didn't. That's the point. It was so close to me and I didn't. <laughs> yeah. There's a sparkly wine called Kush that you must try. K-E-S-H. Okay. It's probably, I don't know, I don't know what the, 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 the pound translation is, but it's about $20 U.S., Method Champenois, absolutely fabulous sparkling wine. Just absolutely fabulous. <sighs> right. Well, there you go, everyone. Something to put on your list and something that I feel really annoyed about that I was so close to yesterday and well, I did not contribute. But it happens. It happens. We'll now, help you. You, you, thank, thank you. <laughs> so what else? So that's, that was actually just already really interesting. We've gone down to Armenia. I did not expect you to take me down there. Mm. Where else? What else is currently in your wine club that is perhaps a surprise? I quite like where we're going, where we can actually bring something new to everybody listening and they can go and investigate. What's interesting about what I do and, and what happens here, Tuesdays is really sort of this mini uh, marketplace of what's going on. And so just because of what's being brought to the table uh, to taste is, is what is people are bringing to the country or what they're making in America. And it's, it's a dynamic thing. I, I, see, I mm-hmm. see everything. And so currently, there's a lot of Spanish that are coming in and very, very mm-hmm. va- um, value-oriented Spanish. And, you know, the Tempranillo grape, the Garnacha grape, you know, they're not well understood by the American palate. So uh, I can tell you that if I if I buy a Tempranillo that says Tempranillo on the label, it's yeah. one of the hardest things for me to sell. Really? Okay, yeah. okay. But if it comes in as Rioja, Yeah, yeah, well. But right? then I guess the majority of people don't realize that Tempranillo is the main grape variety behind Rioja. Right. But I would say in the UK that Tempranillo is a little bit more well-known. But I could also just be making this up. Everyone listening, let me know. <laughs> yeah, no, I think I think that makes sense. Particularly, I'm on the West Coast, so mm. it's, things trickle here slower. Rosé just caught on a couple of years ago. When, really? You know, in Europe. Okay. Oh, yeah. Mm. It's, it's okay. a tougher sell. Because we, we had White Zinfandel from Sutter Home for you know 30 years. Yeah, and, sorry about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Spanish is one... Uh, recently, a lot of Greek. Uh, uh, do you know wines. what? I've been, yeah, okay, I've been saying that Greek wine is going to take off. It, this is the year. This is the year, and a bit like it's like Riesling. It's just like for the consumer, it never seems to. <laughs> yeah, well, that's true, but I and I think part of the biodynamic organic movement is supporting Greek wines. Mm-hmm. So uh, hand in hand, they're coming to America. They're they're still a little pricey, uh, but they're well made. Obviously, a very old. Um, industry in Greece, so I mean it's not Retsina with you know that pine tar stuff yes. which you can't oh drink. Oh my god! 
But, you know, Acertico is actually potentially one of my favorite white grape varieties. Yeah. You know, the, the saline, the mm-hmm. beautiful acidity. It, it, it's not anyone listening who's never had Acertico. I wouldn't go for it if you like your aromatic varieties. But if you like those mineral styles, oh, stunning, isn't it? And, of course, specifically from Santorini, they, they do the best, you know. Um, but, again, they're not the cheapest, are they? I think, which you just no. mentioned. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess it takes a lot of work to get them to America and the UK, right? So, well, of course. <laughs> it takes a of boat course. and it takes a. <laughs> and the problem as well with Greek varieties is you just don't know how to pronounce them. Uh, you, so it's They're not easy names. And I think that's always been a, a massive struggle, right? People want something that they're comfortable with. Well, if you go to the market, I mean, and the supermarket in the UK, I don't know if they have these wines there, but there's probably brands that are similar. If you're walking down the aisle, this is a pet peeve of mine, uh, it, being a wine industry and i'm not a wine geek i mean I, mm. I i certainly geek out on some stuff i think it's pretty interesting but i have to be very careful when i choose wines for my consumers because a lot of times wine geek wines aren't you know broadly palatable by the regular consumer <laughs> but yeah. on the flip side of that you've got this 19 crimes you know sugared up you know yeah, inked yeah, yeah, up yeah. wine and i i prefer that we try to teach these things like the salinity of of a greek wine or anything on mm-hmm. the mediterranean or the or sicilian to to detect those kinds of things rather than these opulent sugared up wines they drive me crazy but at the same time we kind of need those so your listeners like those or my customers like those and then they start to evolve their palates into exactly. finding things in the, the nuances of these really interesting wines but they brought me two sample, two cases of samples of 19 crimes, including Martha Stewart Chardonnay and, and, and <laughs> Snoop Dogg's Cali Red. Needless uh, to say, none of them made the cut. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Everybody, try and broaden your palate <laughs> and your, uh, your options. Unbelievable. Do you have Were those you there? For, um, of course we do. Of yeah. course we do. And, um, I mean, I've, I, you try them because you want to... You want to see what the quality's like, and you don't want to completely slag them off because no. they're effectively celebrity wines. But yeah, the majority are crap. I have to say, though, I did do a podcast episode on a few celebrity wines, but they weren't the typical celebrity wines. Everyone go back and have a look, and they were actually decent. But there's not many of them out there, and they're definitely not ones you're going to find on the supermarket shelf, that's for sure. <laughs> so that's that's a really good question and point about celebrity wines like greg norman the famed golfer Mm. you know he's intimately involved with his winery both in australia and paso robles to make good wines and he's 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 mainstay he's a mainstay brand he's he produces i think two hundred fifty thousand cases a year makes a lot of wine he's part of the process Uh, morgan norman his daughter is part of the process uh and so when it comes and the, the value is very high for those wines Mm. As opposed to a celebrity wine where this, their name is slapped on it. Yes, and they're not even doing anything. Yeah, it's just the they're name. They're not doing anything. And the idea would be to sell the brand because of the association. Exactly. And th- those are easy to spot. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, those are easy to find. But there are other ones. Danica Patrick, the famed race car driver, she has a gorgeous uh, rosé. We just bought it for the club. Not because mm-hmm. it's Danica Patrick. Uh, the... The fresh vine wines that are, and that's a whole different subject we can talk about, the uh, the idea of a healthy wine uh, by the two actresses. I forgot their names now, but they, 
those wines are pretty good. I mean, for, for what they're okay. trying to be. I'm not sure if we have them. Fresh vine wines. Fresh vine say? wines. Okay, all right. Um, there's been a whole host. I mean, I've seen them come and go. There were 16 professional golfers in the in the early 2000s that had wines. Only one survived, and that's Greg Norman. So it's a whole different industry. It's it's about branding, and you and I in the industry try to stay away from that stuff and Absolutely. bring to the table the good I things. Mean, no, for sure. I mean, that's why I decided to do a little bit of an episode on celebrity wines. I mean, you, I'm sure you've tasted two paddocks, the Central Otago Pinot Noirs, um, and they're absolutely fantastic. And actually, mm-hmm. you know, you are from California, Inglenook, Inglenook as well. Yeah, right, um, sure. So, but yeah, but they are going to still cost you a pretty penny for the top stuff, aren't they? So already, they're not mass marketed. They can't be because of the price. And no, hence you right. get some, that's true. Some beautiful quality wines don't you behind that so now the fact that you have been tasting wines and you have said to us that in theory you may know a thing or two now (laughs) yeah (laughs) how would you what advice would you give somebody when they pick up a bottle that they could have some sort of idea that it might be quality have you got anything that you know should they read something on the label something they should look out for that might give them a an idea it's still, you know, it's funny. I'm sure you suffer through the same problem. I was asked to supply the wine to an Easter event for my wife's family down in Palm mm-hmm. Springs, and I forgot. So, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> oops. So we get to Easter, and they're like, "Where's the wine?" I'm like, "Oh, uh, it's in the car." And then I jump in the car and I drive to the store. <laughs> oh dear. Okay, yeah. Hopefully, the store wasn't too far. And so here I am, you know, in the industry. I, I just walked away from, you know. 100,000 cases of wine in my warehouse and I'm looking at the market just like every other consumer mm-hmm. would look at the market and say, okay, what am I going to get? So if I, yeah. when, it, when it comes down to it, if I haven't tasted it personally, I have really a uh, limited idea of what it, what it should taste like except for the following information that you'll find on the label that might help you with an educated guess. And that yes. is, one, the brand, of course. Um, if it's a brand that you understand, like let's just take 19 Crimes as an example, you know, the profile of those wines is the same across the, all of the grapes. So if it's a Cabernet Merlot, Petit Syrah, Pinot Noir, whatever, they're all, it's still the slightly off dry, uh, opulent, you know, extracted wine. You can have a pretty good sense that because it's 19 crimes, you're going to have that sort of direction on the wine. That's fine. Okay. Mm-hmm. Then um, if you know the brand Mondavi or if you know the brand uh, Silver Oak, it would be an expensive wine, you have a reasonable assurance that the wine is style. representative of mm-hmm. that company. Mm-hmm. Yep. So that's the yep. first thing. The second thing is, and, and this part of this is going to come from tasting a lot of wines and having some interest while you're at your friend's house drinking that glass of wine one night, actually looking at the label and saying, hmm, this is a Malbec and it's from Mendoza, Argentina. You know, it's got this character. The next time I go to the market and I see Malbec from Argentina, you know, I, I have a some expectation of what it should taste like or what it could mm-hmm. taste like. And so and the more granular the district or the, the appellation the wine is, again, there's a little bit of, of there's a hint there that you're going to get something of, of regular repute. And so if I love Russian River Pinot Noir, which is one of my favorite districts in California for Pinot Noir, mm-hmm. I'm going to seek a Russian River one because at least I've got a fighting chance that the character's there from, that I like. Mm-hmm. I may mm-hmm. not know the makers that are on the shelf at that day, but I know the district. And so the more granular that is down to the vineyard, 
And certainly we would understand that anything that's got a vineyard-designated uh, uh, appellation, that there's some pride in those grapes that are going into that wine. That's a really good point, actually, isn't it? Because I think as well, when, when you, if you know you, you like Pinot Noir, New World is going to say Pinot Noir, so already that's one hint, but you might not know that, say, you know, Burgundy is the Pinot Noir grape, but once you do... Right. If it does say some, once it says Bourgogne and then maybe Bourgogne Village or whatever it says, but then it says something extra and it is a name of something and it's not the brand name, you know it is, as you said, like a a village designation or it might be a single vineyard. So yes, it still might be confusing, but actually just looking for that extra word... is yeah. going to suggest that it is the more premium wine coming from a more specific site so it will have more concentration and character from the terroir so actually that's that's actually quite a good tip to look out for even if you don't know what it means <laughs> that, that's true you know it's funny you just said that because I, I, I've thought about this before and it's sort of the new world and for your listeners new world being not only uh, uh, stylistically which is um, less rustic and and more uh, fresher and younger and brighter but also, uh, you know, geography, New World versus Old World would be, you know, the wines of Burgundy and Bordeaux and Spain and Italy being Old World. And then uh, many winemakers from those parts of the world respect the New World, which would be, would be American wines, would be uh, Argentinian, the South, South, Southern Hemisphere. Mm-hmm. And now, of course, wines from Dorset, England, because mm-hmm. you get to do whatever you want. But there's some interesting thing that you just said about the pedigree of, let's say, Burgundy. Bourgogne Rouge means the grapes, the Pinot Noir came from anywhere in the district. Uh, Bourgogne Village means it has to come from, you know, some sp- smaller piece of that district. Mm-hmm. And then it gets down to the vineyard designated. And that's something very special and very indicative of the quality. I mean, it's extraordinarily indicative in Burgundy, France, uh, and particularly indicative in Bordeaux. But we don't have that in America. You yeah, know, there yeah. is no designation for a quality level. The only thing I can think of in Cal- if you're looking at a wall of California cabs or Merlots or whatever, is the word estate. Mm. Estate is a uh, requirement by the federal government of America that if it is, if you put a state on there, it has to come from, you know, born and raised in your vineyard and made there. That's the only designation. I mean, you can buy a wine that's labeled America, you know, and, and you could blend grapes from Virginia to California, and that's hardly, <laughs> hardly granular approach to the. Yeah, it doesn't. <laughs> it doesn't make it easy, does it? It is <laughs> no, certainly very difficult. No, one thing as well that I actually got asked in a private masterclass I was giving. They were trying to say, well, how can I know if it's going to be big and bold and what kind of style? One thing as well, I'd say for people stylistically, if the alcohol is higher, in theory, it -hmm. is going to be a richer wine, a heavier wine, because alcohol does raise the body, but also you're not going to have a light, fresh wine at 15% alcohol. That just doesn't work. So one, that's always a bit of a tip for, for style. And the other one as well, if you're buying a French wine, just in general, if you were to think about where it is on the map, you know, when you've gone on holiday, if you've been at the top of France, you know that it's a hell of a lot colder to the bottom of France. So therefore, if you get anything from a cooler region, the grape will have higher acidity and less ripeness. It won't have had as much sugar, which means obviously slightly less sugar will be less alcohol. So the lighter, fresher, more acidic, refreshing styles will come from cooler climates. So I always just say to people as well, have a look and see where it comes from and just try and imagine on the map where that is, if you can, or just use Google, Google's our friend. And then hopefully as well, you'll get an idea of like the heaviness, the richness and the fruitiness. And that's just one style, but 
you know, it's um, it's a minefield. So just if you can look to one great variety or one area and you like it, it's also good to stick with that for a little bit before. And also ask questions in wine shops and sommeliers and gradually grow that knowledge so it's it's easier and you feel more comfortable reading the label, right? You know, I had a, a buyer here. I used to have, I had a different store in a different location. And he, mm-hmm. his name was Dore. He was incredibly good. And that's a really good point you made incredibly good at understanding the consu- the customer's palate mm. by person. So as they came in and he asked the right questions, um, you know, what have you been drinking before? What do you, what have you bought at the market that you liked? How, what's your budget? Those kinds of questions by a good uh, store owner or, or department manager can help you down the road to finding something you'll like. But his talent was translating that information into our inventory. And okay. I still hear from and this is this is probably ten years ago. I still hear customers walk in my current store and they say, you know, I remember Doré was so good at reminding me of what I liked and what I didn't. <laughs> I'm like, but that's a really mm-hmm. good point. You know, yeah. tap the resources of the wine shop or the department manager, the wine department that could help you understand what's up there. And I always say as well, when you find a wine you don't like, that's equally as good as finding, well, maybe not equally, as good as finding a wine you do like, because you don't like it. Why? Is it because it's really bone dry? Okay, perfect. You like wine with a bit more sweetness. You know, is it because it's really oaky? Is it really heavy? Okay, you like wines that are fresh and unoaked, blah, blah, blah. And it, it goes on. So finding wines you don't like then you can also present that to anybody who has some sort of wine knowledge and say I didn't like this because of that and they will be able to take you into the right direction so you know it's one step further for man right <laughs> that's right one great step you know it's an important point though we select wines at the wine of the month club to represent time and place mm. and if I send you a Malbec from Salta you know the highest part of Mendoza let's say and you don't like it, uh, one, I'll replace it for you as a guarantee because I know I can't please all the palates all the time when selecting wines. And it's also will we'll narrow the field for you when you go to the store and you won't look at Salta-based Malbecs because the one I sent you was a pretty good example and it won't ve- mm-hmm. they won't veer far from that and you should stay away from them until you get used to them. So, I mean, uh-huh. we, we save you money. How about that? Yeah, it's it's like a bingo sheet, right? Just keep on crossing right. them off, crossing them off until it's, until it's complete. Oh, that's dear. Right. Well, <laughs> so that's obviously, I don't know how much of a tip that is for people because it is still a minefield, but hopefully one, one step at a time, people feel like they've got a little extra confidence when picking some wine. But what about tasting wine, pairing with food, collecting wine? What tips do you have for anybody to enjoy wine more? Is there something that you feel always empowered to, to tell people about? You know, pairing wines and food is such a wonderful thing. Mm. And, and I, I talk forever on all parts <laughs> of it, marketing of it, the whole thing. But it's an interesting dynamic because it's not always, as you know, uh, it's always, it was white wine with white, white meat, you know, fish with white wine. And, and that's, mm. you and I know that's no longer true. Yeah. Uh, you could certainly have a red wine with a proper chicken dish. And vice versa. And I've been asked to pair things like chocolates, you know, some of these new chocolates with all these crazy ingredients and spices. And and most of my, unfortunately, most of my initial (laughs) ideas, you know, were wrong. And I was on a TV show not too long ago for Valentine's and they sent me all this chocolate and said, please pair some of your wines. And I'm like, oh, Mm -hmm. this obviously is going to be really good with Syrah. And I opened the Syrah and I was like, no, it doesn't work. Mm. So it's a balance between, sometimes you you choose a wine because it, it is the opposite of the wine. If you have a fatty... Uh, Alfredo sauce chicken pasta dish 
probably not going to have this over oak buttery Chardonnay. You're probably going to want some kind of uh, clean, crisp, acidic wine to cut through on your palate. Uh, wine, its job in, in, with the consumption of food is to clear the palate for the next bite. Mm-hmm. It's to prepare you for the next bite. And so not only does it have to match up flavor-wise, or at least attempt to, um, maybe you're doing opposite flavors. Just like when you plate a a dish, you don't always match the flavors between the vegetables and the protein and the starch. Sometimes they're opposite. So uh, you have the same issues with with pairing wines, but the wine's function is to clear the palate for the next taste of food and hopefully be compatible. So sometimes it's the weight of the wine that is in conjunction with the food and opposite the food and sometimes it's the flavor flavor profile and i absolutely did no help to your listeners at all by saying it that way because it's really to me a sort of a a, a crapshoot and that you learn as you go and and try to match it i do think of and i had this conversation with jonathan waxman the famed chef now mm-hmm. in new york at barbudo and he was on my show and we were talking and my daughter's a boulangere from, trained in Paris, so we've, we're talking about food. And he said, you know, we try to um, match the foods on flavors, and sometimes we come away and realize that we needed to match it on the weight mm-hmm. and vice versa. Texture, texture. Yeah, yeah. the texture mm-hmm. of the wine. Well, and, absolutely, because one is going to completely overpower the other if it's not equal. Right. And it's, it's a fascinating subject to try and test and keep, and keep doing it uh, until – you feel like, uh, oh, and this is the other point I was going to make. He he said this, and I go, wait a minute. This is what we do too, and that is, I no longer go home and say, what what are we eating? Let's drink this. I go home and say, what if I feel like drinking? Then I prepare food around what that is, mm. and so my palate has changed over time to to anticipate the wine at dinner yeah. time mm. than the food. And that's kind of an interesting change. Me too. Me too. But there we are, wine focus. One thing I would say as well, just for people pairing, instead of thinking about your protein, your meat, your beef, your chicken, actually, that for me, I think is the least important. I think it's what you're pairing it with. So are you pouring a peppercorn sauce over the steak? Now, all of a sudden, that spicy, uh, creamy nature is the most important thing that you need to think about. You need a wine that's going to be able to handle that peppery sauce if you are doing loads of roasted root vegetables and there's that earthiness to them then you're going to want a wine that maybe has that savory earthy quality to go with that so i always say to people perhaps don't look at the protein just think about the 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 side dishes and the sauces and what is the most powerful thing on that dish and i think then that comes back to exactly what you said textures really as well but I always go like for like really rather than opposites I think opposites um can be the most amazing but they're also the hardest to do <laughs> I completely agree I, I will caution uh, the listeners that I one chef that had on the show said look you know what we do is if we screw up something we just cover it with a sauce oh so, really <laughs> <laughs> well, so you're right on because it's the sauce that's going to change the character it is it absolutely <laughs> is oh dear now tell me before we finish up here, you have already mentioned that you have your own podcast. So, you know, just tell me a little bit about that. There's, uh, you know, many of my listeners may want to come across and listen to you talking to lots of your other guests. So, so who are you talking to? What's the style of your podcast? Well, the podcast started because I have many, many vendors, like I said, on Tuesday that come in here. There's often uh, 
traveling winemakers from either California or Europe or all, all parts of the world that come to L.A., L.A. being a huge market for wine, of course, and they have these winemakers in their cars. They're driving around. They're stopping at restaurants and liquor stores and wine shops, and here I have this incredible studio I built uh, because I was in the social networking world, and I said, you know, we ought to just sit down and start talking, and so I started actually with, with videos about 15 years ago. I've got over 200 episodes of the podcast itself. It's called Wine Talks with Paul Kay. It's generally proprietors and winemakers from all over the world. Just got mm-hmm. done with a couple of Burg- Burgundian winemakers uh, that are oh, incredible. And, and chefs. I do a lot of chefs. Uh, okay. Jonathan Waxman, um, uh, Joaquin Splichal. Uh, I've had Michael McCarty. I've got Alice Waters coming on the show soon. Um, so, uh, pretty interesting stuff. I do some I do some stories on immigration when it comes to wine business. People that have come to America. The Dow Brothers are coming on the show soon. Ah, uh, okay. I, yeah. Great wines. Mag- Absolutely yeah. fantastic. I think I, they just won some high accolade recently. I saw them. They did. Car, didn't they? they did. I, I can't remember which accolade, but it was high. <laughs> I, I had Stephen Spurrier on before he passed, oh, uh, which was God, a very so, honorable mm-hmm. thing to have. A Amazing. Man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, amazing conversation about the judgment of Paris. So, um, it's just a it, it's it's meant to do what you're doing. It's sort of to peel back a little bit what goes on behind the scenes, what winemakers are thinking, what passion it takes to do this, and how to find that passion in the bottle. And that's yeah. the, that's what the show is for. I love it. Okay, so everyone, go over, pick your favorite guest, and and have a little listen. So I hope you enjoyed that episode. Now, part two, next week, I'm really excited to share with you. I think it's a really interesting episode. We're focusing entirely on the US, its modern history. So the events that changed so much. So we're going to be talking about the Judgment of Paris, which happened in 1976. We're going to be looking at the sideways effect. So this is the sideways movie and how it reshaped the industry, how Merlot and Pinot Noir sales were entirely affected by this film. And we'll be looking at the French paradox. If you don't know what that is, look it up. But it's dealing with health and some data studies on polyphenols, resveratrol, why it's good for you and um, what the French paradox and some literature and data did for the wine consumption in the US. So loads of amazing, interesting stories. Wine books are going to be mentioned in it, a few other wine films. So loads of content and I cannot wait to share with you next week. So as always, I leave you with a wine quote and I just wanted to find one that was chilled, that was funny, that wasn't too serious. And so I have one from Rumi, who was a Persian poet and Islamic scholar. And so many of his poems and quotes are beautiful and great. And then there is this one that is circa the 13th century. And he says, either give me more wine or leave me alone. (laughs) I think many a time we have all felt that way so we can all identify. Right, that is it as always. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. Like the podcast if you can. Share the podcast with your wine-loving friends. And if you have the opportunity to leave a review on your podcast app, especially Apple Podcasts, please do. It makes the podcast far more discoverable. Right, you know what is coming next week. So until then, cheers to you.